You're listening to the Slavic Literature Pod, your shelf-help guide to all things Slavic. I'm Matt Garasimovich, PhD candidate at Northwestern University, studying Russian literature and film. And I'm Cameron Lalana, a literature enthusiast and a guy working in media. This is the podcast for people who want to learn more about Slavic literature, art, and culture. Every episode, we're going to be bringing you the background and analysis you'll need to understand these works. If you're interested in supporting us, you can head on over to our website, slaviclitpod.com. All right, Matt, what are we getting into this week? This week, we're going to be covering chapters 10 through 18 of Mikhail Bulgakov's Master and Margarita. It is the end of book one. Mm-hmm. Right. So and we're kind of cranking through at this point. We're, we're carrying. Halfway. We're halfway there, which is, I mean, for our longer series, this is almost a miracle of length here. Um, it's kind of nice. Yeah, right. It's kind of nice to not be covering 1,200 pages at a time. That being said, you should see what we got planned for next year. They're kind of thickies. <laughs> Right. Uh, Before we get into talking about what actually happens in this part, Matt, is there anything you want to cover going into it? I just kind of wanted to complain about (laughs) being in the middle part is all. Yeah. Because this is a novel that's really hard to talk about kind of piece by piece. So we're going to try, but just know, listen to the whole series because it'll be more rewarding that way. (laughs) If (laughs) If you've started this and we're still, we've just released it, turn it off, come back once we're all done in four months two months uh no, no there's there's things there's good things to cover but yeah be aware we're half developing all these points on purpose because we can only talk about so much yeah some of the interesting ideas will have to stay to the side for now but i think nonetheless it'll still be an interesting discussion it's it's a good part there's master there's margarita technically parentheses master's version and <laughs> it's 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 still fun yeah 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 all right, well, speaking of fun, let's have uh, some fun by attending the Variety Theater to see a very interesting play, if you are if you are ready. Please. I had I have had tickets to this play for so long. <laughs> All right, well, that's good to know, because I've only been on sale from since yesterday, so given how long that yeah, must well, have felt like I for mean, you. Professors of Black Magic never come to Moscow, so I was just, I had, I had to pick them up when I saw them. You had to jump on it. You had no other choice. I had to jump on that. <laughs> right. Well, so speaking of the background of, of this professor coming to the stage, you obviously may recall that uh, Professor Volan, the devil, is uh, has wrecked some, some Alleged havoc. devil. Alleged devil. Yeah, that's right. Don't slander him, the, please. <laughs> sorry, the devil's lawyer is there. He, he, he's correct. <laughs> that's not been proven in court of law. I can't say that. Um, so at the Variety Theater, you may recall the director, Lichadeev, uh, gets sent to Yalta at the, at the end of the last part. So in the morning of, we've got the financial director and uh, the, the I want to say the the theater's CPA. That's not right. Uh, the theater's book <laughs> the theater's bookkeeper. I don't think they had no, CPAs. Probably, probably CPA. I don't think they had CPAs in the Soviet Union. Um, yeah, well. <laughs> but anyway, so the, the, these two are like, hey, where's Likhodeyev? There's this weird performance we got to put on today and we're ready to do that, but like what's going on this is weird and they're trying to get in contact with him but they can't until these telegrams are coming in from purportedly Likhodev saying hey i'm in yalta do not put voland on stage and they're like they do the math and they say it is physically impossible for Likhodev to have gone to yalta in the time since we last saw him yesterday and they as they keep getting these letters, they start to believe him, but then they have this moment of like, oh, wait, there's this Crimean restaurant that just opened up not too far like, outside of Moscow called Yalta. He must have gotten drunk at Yalta. That is what happened here. 
and so they, they don't take it very seriously. But oddly, they do get a, a little call, even though the landlines are not working, very mysteriously, telling them, hey, don't keep reaching out, which they find suspicious, but they kind of put it under the table because there's a lot of other things going on. The CPA, the bookkeeper, Venuja, uh, even though they've been kind of told not to go anywhere by that call, he decides, let me go just take the telegrams and investigate a little bit, even though we are pretty certain that Likudev was simply drunk outside of town. And as he's going, uh, several members of Roland's retinue appears, beat him up, drag him outside, and, and take him to Likudev's flat, where um, a, a, a woman with red hair, a scar across her neck, who is not wearing anything, uh, like pulls him in for kind of like, oh, like, oh, welcome in, kind of pulls him in for a kiss, and he, he falls unconscious before that point. From here, we, we join, go back to Ivan Bezdomny, or Ivan Homeless, who is having an argument with himself about what exactly happened there, and is trying to write down the circumstances of the of uh, Berlioz's death, but the more he writes, the more detail he feels is needed, and that extra detail kind of drives him mad, and he starts having a conversation with himself, until suddenly someone appears in the window. And from there, in this moment of, you know, sudden magic almost we go back to the stage at the variety theater where voland is ready to start getting on stage and, and the financial director rimsky is kind of uh, out of order even more so now because now the you know the cpa varanuka has disappeared but you know it this admittedly unpleasant but as he says hardly supernatural occurrence unnerved the financial director and yet uh delighted him as well that he wouldn't have to make the call for um the arrival of voland and uh they all get on stage, the crowd's all there, and the curtains pull back, and Voland is sitting on stage with two members of his retinue. Uh, the First of all, the cat who's sitting there, and secondarily, Koroviev. And they are interested, introduced as the cat, Koroviev, who goes by the name of an instrument, which is French, which goes by Fagot. Uh, Voland is sitting in a chair, he looks out at the crowd and asks Koroviev, uh, Hey, what do you think of the Muscovites? Have they changed? They look out at the crowd and ponder. Koroviev tells them, oh, look at all these technologies they have. And then, you know, Volin kind of says, yeah, well, I'm not so much interested in buses, telephones, and such. A much more important question is, have the Muscovites changed on the inside? He really was the first to do what's the deal with Muscovites. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first, uh, folks. Seinfeld is the devil, according to Matt, I guess. Well, I'm just saying there's some comedic similarities. (laughs) (laughs) All right, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, no, I, th- I think Volan has, has Kramer energy. <laughs> <laughs> but Volan's about to stand up and start throwing out racial slurs on stage. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. yeah. But I did hear Michael Richards left a really big tip at this restaurant one time. Maybe that was Nathan for you. Who's to say? <laughs> who, who knows? Besides, perhaps Nathan. Perhaps Nathan Fielder. <laughs> so, um... From there, they play some tricks on the audience, and Koroviev makes money rain from the ceiling, and the MC of the event tries to stop them, but Behemoth, the cat, pulls his head off and, at the crowd's behest, puts it back on. This whole crowd is wild, you know, eyes wide, it's amazing, and Volan, sitting in the chair still, having done nothing, says, Look, on the whole, Koroviev, they remind me of their predecessors, only... The housing shortage has had a bad effect on them. And with that, he decides he's done with this and he disappears. But the crowd hardly notices because Koroviev keeps on playing tricks for the crowd. He makes a store suddenly appear and say, hello, all the women of the crowd come down, get nice fur coats, get nice French perfume, get all these nice things um, and other uh, tricks he plays on individuals who come down and so on and such forth um, until they uh, 
command the band to play and then suddenly disappear just as Volin before them from the stage, which everyone is so underneath all this money and all these nice things they've been given to really notice or care. From there, we uh, go back to Yvonne and the stranger, and the stranger reveals he's another patient and begins to tell him his, his story. Um, and we, the man conveys the story of basically being that he was a historian who won a lottery at some point, and he decided to go write a book about Pontius Pilate. The master, as he is called, or as he is named, at, rather, at some point, uh, he meets, while writing this book of Pontius Pilate, he meets this woman who is uh, not named in this part, but we will come to know as Margarita, uh, who both of them are, at this point, married, but they begin this sort of relationship where they're secretly married as he's working on this novel. Uh, and it's his work that, in a lot of ways, draws them together. In many ways, he mentions that her attraction to his work and, and what he's writing Almost he feels jealous as if it's like a third person in this relationship that she is so interested in. Although he tries to eventually publish it, the people who he takes it to denounce it, essentially. People start publishing denunciations of the master and his sort of religious tendencies and uh, deeply paranoid as a result of all this. One night he hears uh, someone entering the house in which he lives and suddenly burns the manuscript only for it to have been Margarita, who then tries to gather it back up and then goes to get some things and say, hey, I'll be back in the morning. And the master decides, look, too much is going on. I'm going to go turn myself in. And he goes to the this asylum that they're currently in, this um, clinic, and uh, voluntarily becomes a patient. Uh, Yvonne asks for the rest of Pilot's story at the end of this story. Uh, and master the master basically tells him that it's not for him to tell. From there, we go back to the Variety Theater. As soon as people exit the theater, all these tricks that uh, Koroviev has played, uh, giving them coats and other goods, money, it suddenly begins to disappear, right? I mean, these things are literally f like going away from their bodies. And Varunucha, the CPA, comes back. There's something feels off about it. And then it turns out to be not Varunucha, but rather another member of Volan's retinue who almost grabs Rimsky until uh, a crow, a rooster, rather, uh, crows three times, and that drives the retinue away such that Rimsky can run and go get a train. From there, we go back to the asylum where, remember, uh, a character from the last part, Nikonor Ivanovich, has this dream about speculative money and currency and all that. But at the very last moment, importantly in this chapter, Ivan, after everyone in this, in this ward is being sedated so they can fall asleep, Ivan begins to have a dream, and that dream leads back into Jerusalem where, at this point, uh, Jesus has been condemned to death, or Yeshua HaNosri has been condemned to death, and we follow the step-by-step the -step of his execution of um, him being put up along with the criminals, uh, Dismas and uh, the other one whose name I cannot recall at the moment, uh, being put up on crosses and left to die. As from afar, uh, Matthew Levi, or Levi the tax collector, becomes Matthew, who in this uh, version I'm reading is named uh, Levi Madvey. I don't know why that's funny to me, but uh, <laughs> Levi Matvey, watching from afar, who intends to, would like to kill Jesus, not because he hates him, but because he loves him so much he doesn't want to suffer this horrible death, up until um, a storm appears and all the centurions there decide it's not worth it to keep standing here for hours and hours as these three die and kill all three by stabbing them with a spear before leaving. And at that point, uh, Levi Matvey uh, goes and cuts all three bodies down and take Yesh takes to take Yeshua away before we jump back in the present day into Moscow, uh, in, at which point a, an investigation is launched into what exactly happened after that, that, that play where everyone got all these nice things and all this money became, came into the Moscow supply, which was not real money, as people find, um, and tricks are played, and all these 
um, things happen as people try to, as um, another bookkeeper for the theater tries to go give them performances, uh, revenues away in the morning. He cannot because everything, wherever he goes, something's going on. Everyone's singing. People have disappeared. Uh, a person has been replaced by a suit. And by the time he finally finds a place, he can turn that money in. He opens up the the suitcase to show them all the rubles that they'd collected at the last performance only to find every currency imaginable except a ruble in there and he is arrested for speculation and in the last very the last part the uncle of berlioz comes to to moscow in order to try to claim his apartment rather uh, selfishly does not care much about his nephew only to be ejected from berlioz's apartment because the uh, voland and his retinueist have taken up uh, residence there and we also have this a small moment where a uh, bartender for the variety theater comes and tries to get some money from them as well and he's also similarly sent away and that's where we leave part one of the novel it asked really great questions about god faith where to hide your speculative currency <laughs> in gold bars under which family members floorboards <laughs> right. really important questions right right do not leave them in family members floorboards do not put them in your duct sh- in your shaft do not leave them in the suitcase into which you are going to turn in uh, someone at a counter for example uh, all yes. bad places to hide your speculative currency and or otherwise ill-gotten revenues and perhaps do not let michael richards up on stage right <laughs> I, I found the clip oh god okay. by the way Wait, wait, which clip? The Nathan for you clip. Oh. <laughs> well, I'll go ahead and link that in the show notes for anyone who would like to have more context for that. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you very much. If you don't know what I'm talking about, which <laughs> I don't think anybody ever does. <laughs> well, that's good. That's why we have the show notes, to provide context for what we're talking about. Yeah, I think most people are listening to me out of a sense of duty or obligation <laughs> at this point. <laughs> Speaking of uh, not knowing what we're talking about and context... Is there anywhere in particular you would like to start? I just wanted to say that this was kind of the the real chaos part. I don't know if this is the um, philosophy Chad's favorite part. This was just the funny part. Sure. You know what I mean? Right. A, a lot of what was what was happening here, minus the execution, uh, were funny. Right. And it is important to remember why we read The Master and Margarita, and a large part of that is just because it is a fun endearing kind of at at some points read uh it's just entertaining right it just makes you laugh the idea of some bureaucrat just being an empty suit um things like this right they're funny yeah and i think sometimes when you're approaching work like this and this is a conversation we've had there there's a difficulty in not having been like a a, an intended reader and in many ways, well, mm-hmm. Bulgakov did not have intended readers. This was written for the death drawer in many ways. But Bulgakov had, I think, a theoretical audience in mind, the people of his time who experienced the same things. So there's sometimes a difficulty approaching this where you're, there might be a tendency, if you don't know what's going on, to either think that there's something that you don't get, like literature-wise going on here, like there's something to, for you to decode here. And I think for some elements that is true, but there's also a lot of elements in which it is meant to be a joke, and it's meant to be funny. Mm-hmm. People who experience this. There's the bartender when he goes to the Voland 
has this iconic scene where uh, I, th- I don't think it's Volan. I think it's one of the other members. Of the retinue starts kind of abusing him over the fish. Um, like that was, you know, rotten fish. And the guy says, no, 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 we got it directly from, you know, the, wherever they got it from. And it was, uh, I grant was not fresh, but it was second grade fresh. That's the best we can get it. And, you know, the, again, the retinue starts confusing him and saying second grade fresh. That's not a real thing. That's just rotten fish. And that, that's a more egregious example. Like, I don't think anyone would take that as sort of something being hidden. But in a lot of ways, these frustrations that I think Bulgakov is conveying in a humorous way. Uh, sometimes can be misread as something that people don't, as like something as a deeper message than it necessarily is when it's, as you say, in a lot of ways trying to be funny, trying to find humor in in something that is otherwise quite frustrating. Right. But there are also a lot of symbols. And there are that too. That, that is the difficulty that it also, it does exist. Symbols do exist, but they're not, not all of them are, and teasing them apart is the difficulty. Yeah, I, I, I think that part of the book on my whatever this read through is for me on it is kind of just just kind of being along for the journey a little bit you know i i think that in i don't know if this is controversial to say but i think you can this is this is a book that's really within most people's grasp without really needing a lot of extra secondary whatever Hmm. you know it gets through the intended point which is just to be uh, satirical to be funny uh, to be enjoyable there are a lot more avenues that you could continue to read up on this and analyze this but I, I think that it's just uh, on face value just a fun book to read and I think that's what's most important now that being said there are a lot of symbols I read an article about symbols <laughs> this week about signs and symbols no but that would have been that would have been pretty pretty good yeah since that just came out when we were recording this episode <laughs> right well okay tell very, me more about very topical about thank you I'm, I'm always very topical instead of these uh signs and symbols which we're so familiar with from our friend nabokov tell me more about the signs and symbols that you were reading about so i read this article called an interpretation of the occult symbolism in mikhail bulgakov's the master and margarita by amy delacour and it was a very interesting article that kind of went thematically through a, a couple of different sort of core symbolic, tra- I don't want to say tropes, but like trends or groupings, let's say. So, right, like occult symbolism, Freemasonry, uh, general sort of mysticism. And she's asking the kind of question like, what sort of mindset or what sort of background would allow us to decode the Master and Margarita? What could we approach the text with that would sort of unlock it and make it sort of like, oh, I have the key to understanding Bulgakov finally. And I think that it sort of ends on a note which I agree with, which is sort of like there, there really isn't, there's really not one. There's a lot of ways that you can approach it. Um, like we've talked about, a lot of people approach it with a certain religious mindset, but as we discussed in our first episode, there's a lot of disagreement even still about what that, what that means, right? Who is Voland? Is he, is he the devil? Is there, is there a way to interpret this? I mean, I mean, there's endless, endless ways and everybody who writes about this obviously tends to think that they have the sort of, that sort of viewpoint, but 
I think as as you read more and more, you find that uh, not not ne- not necessarily do they have as uh, cohesive or um, y- you know hmm. cohesive, I guess, of, of a viewpoint as it may start off. And so in this article, there were a lot of interesting things that I had not really considered. I don't know that much about the symbols and rituals of Freemasonry, but this was, of course, something that really fascinated Bulgakov. And he was really influenced by uh, Pushkin, Goethe, and Steiner, who were all Freemasons and who all wrote a lot about or, you know, used this sort of Freemason symbols in their writing. And the author links this to the Master and Margarita in parts that we have not discussed yet. So I won't, you know, I, I'm not going to spoil this book that's <laughs> mm. been out for, you know, almost 100 years. But sure. I, it was just interesting. And then this sort of ending that, uh, you know, essentially the. Uh, there's not one kind of way that we can necessarily approach it. And that kind of did make me think of our signs and symbols discussion and, you know, Nabokov's referential mania, this madness that we feel as we try to decode a text when, you know, Hmm. not all of them, maybe not any of them are really meant to be decoded. You know, it's really arguable and debatable. I think, I think, I do think we have a grasp on some better than others, but I don't know about you, for me personally, when I read through scholarship on Master and Margarita, I do find it like a little bit underwhelming. I just feel like a lot of the things that I find, I'm not really, like I wouldn't bring them on the podcast necessarily. Right. <laughs> they, they might be interesting, and they might bring in a few points, but I kind of feel like um, it's, I don't know, like misses the point. Right. Which gets to so many pieces you and i have both read which we talked about before we start recording and then kind of say it's interesting but i don't know if i'd bring it on the podcast which is one of the great difficulties we've had bringing that on you're right um but and one of the signs and symbols that not much in the way of decoding but is something interesting to talk about um i kind of want to get to talking about the new soviet man we've talked about in many ways how bulgakov is writing to his time and uh, a lot of his time is about this idea of the new Soviet man. So let's let's talk about that. What <laughs> what? Well, start off. What is that for people in the audience who may not be familiar? This is uh, something that will probably sound familiar to you if you are somebody who does uh, more reading in Russian literature than just the Master and Margarita. If you've done, you know, if you've read along, listened along to some of our other episodes that we've done. This is a debate that has gone on for a long time. And that is, can you change people? Can you make people change, essentially, if you were to remove somebody from a certain set of social and economic circumstances and place them in a different one, or if you were to raise you know, them in a different one, what would happen? Can you make them different, essentially? And in the case of the Soviet Union, they were trying to build the new Soviet man or the new Soviet person. And they were trying, you know, to essentially make politically involved, good communists, people who who like to work and contribute to society. And they believed that they were going to do this with their socioeconomic system. And you might think that this sounds really familiar, and that's because it probably should because it's essentially this exact same debate that Chernyshevsky and Dostoevsky are having in the mid-19th century. 
and it's been going on even longer than that but it gets really starts to reach its, its boiling point you know here um or i guess even earlier than bulgakov's writing kind of the early 1920s this is when this is sort of being formulated and really really thought about in these specific terms so this whole chapter 12 in my copy black magic and its exposure when voland is doing the uh show in the variety theater and he's asking whether the muscovites have actually changed he's you know kind of making fun poking fun at the idea of of the new soviet man saying that okay you have these people that claim that they're all good communists but essentially i bet they're all hypocrites and i'm going to tempt them by putting you know dresses and jewels and everything on stage and i'm going to see what they do and of course they all are fighting like animals trying to get uh you know all of these luxury items not even like basic goods right like it's not like he took a bunch of people who were starving and put food on stage and, you know, it was like fight peasants. No, <laughs> these are like people fighting over French dresses that they don't need, right? These are people that are, you know, probably already kind of well off. Um, evidently, a lot of them are because they're, you know, hoarding gold bars and whatnot. Sure, yeah. And so, yeah, this is the kind of idea that he's making fun of and that kind of comes up over and over again in the course of the Master and Margarita. Right. And as as is the case, not only is it just people wanting material goods, but also much of Karobi of what he does is targeting the specific failures of people, not just wanting material goods, but also, you know, some powerful person here having an affair, um, trying to say, hey, look, trying to stand up and, and demand some sort of order as he would have it. And then Karobi says, well, why don't I go ahead and kind of pull your life apart piece by piece by uh, conveying the secrets <laughs> that you would like to keep. So to your point of beyond just like wanting material goods, but also like have city folk changed as Voland and Karoviev says, no, they still want things. Nope. We've still got these powerful guys cheating on their wives, you know, and, and uh, giving the, them uh, you know, in exchange for bringing people up in society. All these things are eh, pretty much the same. Some of them uh, housing worse, hard to get a good apartment. Um, would, would fear what uh, Volan would have to say about uh, coming into stage anywhere in the Bay Area, but uh, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's an interesting point that he's yeah he's targeting the the sort of like individual aspects of people at least on one level. On the other level, he's just putting out you know fancy things. Sure, yeah. And uh, the Muscovites are are lapping it up basically. They they love it. And they love the fancy stuff. Yeah. So it, it's um I would say I guess a little bit more. I don't know. We've been talking about the nature of Voland, and he's kind of, in a lot of ways, it's sort of passive. You know, he's more of a tempter uh, in a lot of ways than he is, uh, you know, directly doing things to harm people. Although I think this is this sort of situation where he really does, you know, directly put people in the situation. Although I guess you could argue it's still their own uh, actions that lead to their downfall, but... I don't know. He's uh, still a supremely interesting character. Right. I mean, he's like a he's he throws chaos in his situations by well, first of all, there's the whole disappearing people thing and that's that's its own thing worth addressing, but and outside of that, uh he really truly lives up to the the name of the devil in the Bible or in also in uh, the Torah of like the the questioner Ha Satan of like pulling people in and asking, right? Like what's going on in your life? What's going on? Um are you living up to 
the life you pur- purport to live up to? Are you truly as Soviet as you are, as, as you would say, and not really need all these nice things, not need a mistress, not need these perfumes, whatever? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's it's an interesting question. Right. As to even how much people are responsible for their own actions. I think that raises kind of an interesting question on that. It doesn't resolve it either, but it raises it for now. Well, we're at the midpoint in the book, so I think it's yeah, 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 it's, yeah. it's forgivable for now. Whether anything's even resolved, we'll see. <laughs> maybe no, maybe nothing will resolve. That's that's we're leaving you in a cliffhanger. You'll have to come back to future episodes to find out. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of Soviet, let's talk about in a lot of ways, like we've been talking about, this is satire. This is Bulgakov uh, playing, having fun with the, you know, the the life that he sees around himself at this time. And in the novel, the you know, Volan, the devil is interrogating those things as a form of satire. But uh, how does the satire function on a more literary level? All right. So this was a great article. I think it's open access. I need to double check. But there's this article that I read also for this week that I really liked called The Stalinist Subject and Mikhail Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita by Jessica Merrill. Uh, And this was, I would say, actually a very well-written, easy-to-follow argument and paper, which is, I I say, as an utmost compliment because while the stereotype that academics don't write clearly is uh, usually pretty true in my experience. (laughs) So I I did enjoy this read challenging but quite interesting and this is a sort of theme that kind of comes up a lot but i think it's it stays on sort of a superficial level the sort of satire of stalinism and it kind of in in a lot of pieces that i've read it's it sort of rehashes what i deem to be like overtly obvious Hmm. like almost wikipedia level obvious <laughs> that's a great insult i gotta say yeah i'm not naming anyone specific <laughs> uh, this isn't even a, a specific criticism of, of one piece but it, it does i will say tend to happen on books that draw in non-specialists of our field and that is not necessarily an insult it's just kind of something i noticed that will happen on some of these books um, where it's like, so it might be like the Master Margarita in Russian literature might just be like so new for your own field that when you take it back and add in just a little bit of something else, um, maybe you have a great paper for your field, but like in, in ours, sometimes it doesn't really like, yeah, no, we, like we got it. We've already been looking at this for like decades. <laughs> right. So it's not like what you're bringing is not really that interesting. It's not really pushing forward what we're thinking of when we're looking at this. Um, so anyways, I digress. This article was not that. I thought it was very interesting in the way that it was sort of formulated, discussing the two, uh, the two plot lines, the two timelines that we have already just started discussing from our our last episode. And so I have uh, a couple of quotes that I thought were pretty interesting uh, from this article. She says, "I will discuss first how the Moscow chapters evoke a traditional Christian subject position." and then turn to show that the Jerusalem chapters presuppose a secular modern subject. In the world of the Moscow narrative, knowledge is transcendent and omnitemporal. Humans are treated as passive objects of free will, and punishment is corporal and symbolic. In Jerusalem, on the other hand, knowledge is limited and based on empirical observation. 
Humans are fundamentally autonomous and self-determining agents and punishment is meant to reform through incarceration. And we don't have to go into this last part because we haven't gotten to this <laughs> this last part in the, in the narrative <laughs> yet. Um, but I think it's it's interesting, right, to sort of start to conceptualize the two plot lines because that is a major feature of the novel and how they kind of start to get reconciled or in this case don't Mm -hmm. (laughs) um because meryl argues that vulgakov doesn't actually reconcile but he brings them to their own conclusions and we'll see how this works in the end but how this sort of relates to stalinism uh she says that the dual plot this um moscow and jerusalem it's not an either or opposition but it's a critical response to stalinist ideology which combines a subjectivity with a religious conception of the world as predetermined so and simpler terms this sort of idea that you know we're the soviet union we are moving towards communism it is determined we are rewriting every academic discipline to show how we are moving towards communism. And if it doesn't move towards communism, then it is wrong because that is not how the world works. Um, right. Everything is, it's so, it's so certain and predetermined that it is in, in some sense religious. It has these very strong overlaps, um, especially with, with Christianity. Um, and then this subjectivity that she shows is really quite interesting. And you see it most, I think in the devil character, which is you sort of have somebody who has a level of knowledge which is outside the scope of the other characters in the novel. Um, and so he's sort of this character that people are fascinated by, but they, there's not an aspect of trust um, there. Uh, and so you, you kind of don't trust what's what's happening at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's very tricky. He plays tricks on people. Um and so when you combine uh, these two aspects, this sort of subjective, like lack of trust with this sort of certainty, you get something that's kind of ridiculous. And my, my takeaway, at least from the article, was this is what she's comparing to being like, to like living under Stalinism, right? Where you have this really sort of strong central authority that you are not sure exactly if it's if it's right um and we'll talk about why in this in a second um but at the same time you also kind of everything else in the world like i said like uh academia and and everything all these disciplines are certain that you're moving towards a certain direction um and the reason that i say that that this point in stalinism is is important and why i think it's kind of this is why it kind of tends to be the sort of like Wikipedia level analysis for <laughs> non-specialists, right? Is it is often just portrayed again, and we've talked about this a lot, but it's often just portrayed as this like horrible, brutal, um, you know, absolute like YA dystopia sort of land. Uh, in in a lot of ways, it was. But there was also a period where I think this novel really kind of shines where like people weren't onto it yet. Like people hadn't figured out what was happening, like the average person, right? Mm. Um, the idea that the government would, why, like, why would the government arrest communists if we're moving towards communism? That makes no sense. So, I mean, so you have this sort of like <laughs> sort of 
this this absolute power that you're not sure if you can trust because you assume they have this sort of knowledge that right clearly these people were in the wrong because they're being arrested and because um they're probably not good communists you know we're all good communists trying to work towards communism but these people were arrested so they probably weren't um and sort of i think the novel sort of this part in particular it really is a fascinating look at the sort of like the way the disappearances worked before you really kind of knew what was happening. Mm. That was kind of my takeaway from this part. Um, and it's, it's funny. Well, I mean, there's humorous aspects. It's, it's dark humor, right? Um, in hindsight, but it is still interesting. Right. Yeah. And I think we've talked about Vasily Grossman before, who obviously, uh, in we've covered God, Cameron can't wait to bring <laughs> I, I every episode salivating every episode I could hear you on my notes sheet number one is how do I bring Grossman into this um, it's like someone was dangling a steak in front of you <laughs> but actually behind the steak was a sheet of paper with the silly Grossman's name written on it <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, in Stalingrad, obviously, you know, we, we get towards the war itself, but this sort of patriotic uh, pre- conception of the war and of the necessity of some of these sacrifices as he's writing Life and Fate, uh, which is at a point when he's meeting more and more people who are coming back from the camps at that point, it begins to shift in, in scope. And I think there are many people who look back at this era and think of like Life and Fate Grossman of like well we might we if i were back in that time i would have understood or they'll watch and this is a great movie and i don't mean to knock it because i love it but like the death of stalin right their their conception of stalinism every night uh these black marias going out in the streets and, and pulling people out um not to say that it, that was not a, a feature uh to, to many people but to like that kind of paranoia portrayed to us as viewers of the past and viewers of these pieces of media i think creates this conception that for everyone all the time was that sense of paranoia when I think when you look back at this, the research of the era of people being interviewed at that time, even people in many camps had the perception that, well, obviously my arrest was wrong, but I don't think that's a systemic failure. I think that's, they made a mistake with me. I don't deserve to be here. All these other people around me are traitors to the state, and I think that is the correct. I think it is correct that they are here. Um, it's, I, it, I, yeah, Bill, on what you're saying, I, not quite true that everyone would recognize this as a great injustice. And for many people, it would have been just sort of this curiosity of, oh, isn't it strange how Lichdeev's wife and everyone else's wife in this building has disappeared, and also these other neighbors have disappeared, and it's really made it easier for us to move in here. So no big deal, but kind of odd, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's an interesting kind of to me that's one of the really fascinating parts about studying this Mm, era right um people assume that you want to study it because you want to expose what was bad Mm. but i I think that that's like i don't know to take like such a um, i don't know like a lawyerly approach to it uh, i don't know comes at it from a an angle that misses understanding Mm -hmm. you know so I don't know. That, that's why I think that there's something to be taken away that's a little different than what people sometimes take away from this novel. Right. And, and maybe my stumbling makes even the slightest bit of sense for some people, hopefully. <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, but yeah, this discussion on knowledge is really interesting. And I, I didn't really notice this until I read through this article again that the narrator, and again, I haven't like... I need to go back and pay a little more attention, but this is at least the the strain of argumentation from the article, which I think is interesting, that the narrator really 
tends to favor those who are in close proximity to Volan. Mm. And the sort of, even your own knowledge as a reader of who who is doing what and like who is what essentially boils down to how close they are to Voland. And that is something we'll see more with Margarita as we get through the sort of last half of the book. But uh, whether the narr- narrator views people positively or negatively depends on their relationship to Voland. And th- this is something that's specific to Moscow because he is, and correct me if I'm wrong, right? he's with Pontius Pilate. He's, he's in this other plot, but the, the plot does not revolve around him, right? The plot in Moscow revolves around him. It doesn't exist without him, essentially. Mm-hmm. But this other one, right, it has nothing nothing to do with it. And we'll we'll see how that sort of how this sort of colliding worldviews end. It ends fantastically and wonderfully. Um kind of <laughs> kind of. Kind of. Um but it's it's interesting. The the idea of knowledge specifically, I think emerges here as is an important sort of touchstone for the whole book right and if i can take that to a moment to specifically uh yvonne bezdolny you can thank you i appreciate i appreciate the uh Mm -hmm. information um so (laughs) uh yvonne bezdolny in the last piece i I brought up or in the last episode we had in this i brought up a piece which argues that uh yvonne bezdolny is sort of in this as as the author terms in schizophrenic state where uh this yvonne bezdolny is unable to tell the truth from from fantasy and in this case it's unclear even to us as a reader what is truth and what is fantasy that he's between Berlioz who's the pure you know realist in a in a sense uh seeing what is true big quotes and Voland who's the sort of fantastical figure uh and is therefore by being unable to like really convey uh this pure Soviet truth which is that the things we don't like here Voland in particular and Voland's activities are not real and are not happening um, and you know Voland's activity pre- preference for the belief that these things are in fact happening leads him to be uh, brought to this mental uh, facility in this case I think it's really interesting that he is first of all his his name Bezdolny homeless is used less often in this part I didn't do an exact count of how often you know Ivan is used versus his nickname but I'm fairly confident that uh, Ivan is used much more often than Bisnomli ever is in this part, especially after he meets the master. And I think it's interesting, and this is sort of a point that I, I pulled from an article which has other ramifications for the larger novel as a whole, but uh, it's called Fuelatons Don't Burn. Fuelatons is French. Don't at me for how my for how I pronounced it. Volgakov is the master. In... They don't care about pronunciation. Right. <laughs> don't worry. And France, no, I would never. Volgakov uh, is the master Margarita and the imagined Soviet reader by Maria Kissel, um, who points out that uh, Ivan has an evolving consciousness, an evolving conception of society at this point, and especially after meeting the master, his attitude is changing. Uh, from the point when she meets the devil, and he is less and less like the good Soviet poet he was at the beginning. The master kind of asks him, did you write good poetry? And Ivan, at this point, who has had this dialogue between him and his old self in the novel, says, no, it wasn't very good. And the master says, have you considered writing better poetry? And, you know, Ivan says, I'm certainly going to stop writing the bad poetry. Um, and I think notably, it's... From his perception, this the jump into Jerusalem in this chapter, it's when he's being put to sleep. His last thoughts as he's falling asleep are the beginning lines of the 
chapter in Jerusalem, much in the same way that when Volin begins to tell the story in in the first episode we covered, and when in his last lines of that chapter begin the next lines of Jerusalem, I think it's interesting that uh, you know the knowledge that Ivan has is pushing him away from this proper Soviet poet in many ways and towards something we'll talk about more later. But that's reflected in the story and how he's treated and how he acts and how he talks about his work and even just how he's referred to. You see that changing in his treatment as well. I also, on a sort of last kind of point on Voland, if I may, because I like him. Sure. <laughs> Matt's a big fan of the devil. Yeah, seems like an all right guy. Um, big fan of magic. <laughs> <laughs> Matt is the best Magic the Gathering player I do know. Right, right, right. Yes. Uh, well, I'm, well, I'm trying to wrap up this this knowledge thought in a way that's interesting, relevant. I am reminded of this sort of last part of th- this book where he, Voland, is talking to the guy who runs the buffet, Andre, at the Variety Theater, who comes to him and says, Hey, listen, pal. I was giving everybody change that whole night with the fake money. Uh, you know, I, I was changing the fake money that you gave in the theater. And now as a result, I have a bunch of cut up paper scraps in uh, wh- where I thought I was supposed to, you know, have money. And now I'm going to have to pay them back. And not not only does Voland tell him, I, I know you're hiding money. I know you're hiding gold bars. And I know, <laughs> I know that you're actually quite well off with the money that you have. Then he tells him he's also going to die of cancer in nine months, and there's there's no reason for him to even go to the doctor because they're not going to be able to cure it. And, of course, he does try to go to the doctor, and the doctor says, hey, I was first in my class at Moscow State. What are you talking about? You don't have cancer. You're not going to die. Um, And this sort of idea that um, knowledge can lead to madness, that knowledge is not always maybe inherently good, right? That knowledge can have in some ways morality attached to it it's kind of reminiscent of you know eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil i think that's where this is kind of from very first level drawing from um but it's it's not just the knowledge of good and evil but the actual the act of knowing itself right that carries some sort of morality with it um and something sort of you know, stronger with it. And that's why this conversation that we were having earlier on symbols and, you know, like referential madness continues to be interesting because it's it's almost like, you know, Bulgakov's winking at you saying, yeah, wouldn't you like to know what it means? You know, but you don't. Um, and, and maybe it's for the best. You know mm. what I mean? Right. Like maybe it's best to just enjoy the reading and leave it at a certain level. Sure. If you're reading this, Matt says, don't think too deeply about it. Just enjoy. Yeah, just just consume it. <laughs> just buy it. Just buy copies through our affiliate links and consume it. You don't don't um, don't think. <laughs> just consume. That's certainly what part one have you believe, but uh, we will. No, I'm no, not I'm saying not, don't. Yeah. <laughs> you know, don't think. I'm I'm just saying, like at a certain point, like the point isn't to decode every single symbol, right? You know, it's it's not the, what what is this exact thing? You know, this exact reference mean like. I just relax. You'll be fine. <laughs> It'll still be a good read. I promise. Yeah. They still somehow got Daniel Radcliffe to write, you know, one of the four words in the copy I have. 
<laughs> don't know why he's relevant to the master and margarita but sure russian literature is like oh god we finally got a celebrity put him in put him in <laughs> hey um i'll take it we'll take it we i don't think you mm-hmm. we usually get much in this field so no he also said he loves the slavic literature pod oh so. well yeah i mean you, you got to take that on face value yeah radcliffe loves that <laughs> and you can put that those words in our mouths just go ahead and spread that around yeah yeah, yeah. That's what is in this forward. Yeah, but I, I told him I don't really, I, like, it's fine. I know people like you, but uh, after after what you did to BoJack Horseman on that game show, I don't know if I... <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> I don't I don't have a follow-up line. I don't have a good transition for <laughs> that, but... Um, just fade, just, just fade, fade. fade to the music. Just fade, just fade into our wrap-up, which is that, uh, Matt, uh, before we completely wrap up, I have to ask... What are we tackling next week? Next week, we have already recorded the episode, but it's going to be great. It is Andrei Tarkovsky's 1972 film, Solaris. I have a lot to say about it, which, for better or worse, I do. <laughs> right. Um, it's a good episode. It's a good episode. A lot to say about Blue, but whether or not it means anything, but whether or not it's yeah. just him trying to convey night. Um <laughs> <laughs> I think unlike this episode where I am just saying leave it, I will not say that in the next right. episode. <laughs> so, uh, ter- I will decode. <laughs> I will be referentially manic the next episode. Tarkovsky is the perfect example of the signs and symbols mattering where the colors do matter unless they are do not. They were just trying to convey night. Um, and it's really up to you to figure <laughs> out which one's which. It's it's gonna be good. Yeah, it will be. It is. It was good, and it will be good when it releases to you as listeners. To help keep our show independent and for exclusive access to notes containing all the research that went into this episode, head on over to our website slaviclitpod.com. Before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current supporters. Absolutely, that would be Ben, Jeff, Mai, Daniel, Lou, Gary, Janice, and Isaac, Emily, Caitlin, Yitza. Arini, and Pack Rob. The music used in this episode was Staraya Kino by Piramotka. You can find more of their stuff on Bandcamp or Spotify. The links and spelling are in the show notes. You'll hear from us again soon. Hey, 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 hey.